What you're about to listen to is the final part of a five-part series on the Crimean War. This is going to be borderline incoherent if you haven't heard the first four parts, so I recommend that you listen if you haven't. If you have, on with the show. The year 1855. The place, the Crimea. The siege of Sevastopol reaches its apex in some of the most ferocious combat of the 19th century. The first modern war is about to end. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I'm your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 31, Crimea Part 5, Food for Powder. Guys, we have finally, finally, right, come to the end of the Crimean War. After four episodes of bloody stalemate, failures and incompetence and neglect and mischances, the struggle between the European great powers is about to culminate in the final beatdown around Sevastopol. And it was these last terrible months in the trenches, more than anything, that made the Crimean War the first modern war. So guys, it's part five of my longest series so far. It has been six weeks since I started the Crimean War epic, so it is beyond necessary for me to give you a quick recap so we are all up to speed. Now, where were we? Queen Victoria's Europe was in an age of transformation and revolutions, industrial, political, romantic, reformist, and nationalist. But in 1853, an obscure religious dispute morphed into a great power struggle over the fate of the Ottoman Empire, the sick man of Europe. By 1854, Britain and France had come to the defense of the Ottomans. The old consort of Europe had been broken and the balance of power had been thrown out of whack. To strike a blow against Russian power in the Black Sea, the Allies decided to invade the Crimea, which was a great idea with no long-term consequences whatsoever. What was supposed to be a quick victory turned into a long, agonizing campaign revolving around the siege of Sevastopol. The battles of the Alma, Balaclava, and Inkerman failed to have any decisive impact, and the miserable winter of 1854-55 left all the armies in desperate conditions. By March 1855, Tsar Nicholas I was dead, and his son Alexander II swore to continue the war. But Russia was under pressure on multiple fronts, including the Baltic and the Caucasus, as well as the Crimea. In spring of 1855, all eyes turned to the Crimea, because it was here that the war would be won or lost. Are we all solid? We squared away? I'm going to give you the chance to check the feed for anything you might have missed, including the two short rounds I released last week. Three, two, one. All right, let's finish it. Guys, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Brief mentions today of sexual assault and suicide. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources and my maps are posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. All my sources there, so you fact check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. The title of this episode comes from Shakespeare. Henry IV, Part 1. When a knight named Falstaff, one of Shakespeare's greatest characters, has been assigned to raise a unit of troops to fight for King Henry. 
The unit he presents to Prince Hal are the most scraggly bunch of gutter scrapings that anyone has ever seen, just a bunch of low lives. When Prince Hal points this out, Falstaff reassures him. Tut, tut, good enough to toss. Food for powder, food for powder. They'll fill a pit as well as better. Tush, man, mortal men, mortal men. So I watched an online broadcast of the of a production of this play back in the, during the pandemic lockdown during 2020 by the American Shakespeare Company up in Stanton, Virginia. And that line stuck out to me because, guys, this was how most people throughout history had viewed soldiers as disposable, as cannon fodder, pawns, or, as Falstaff described them, food for powder, tools to be thrown away as the ruler or general or lord or knight saw fit. They might also see fit to take care of them, inspire them, or see to their needs, and the good generals did this. But it was perfectly acceptable to treat them like garbage, scum, almost subhuman. The soldier was a lower-class pawn, to be sacrificed when necessary, starved, abused, beaten, mistreated, and this was normal. Leo Tolstoy once saw a Russian officer beating his soldier for, he said, no other reason than soldiers must be beaten. Even the Duke of Wellington, Britain's great war hero of the Napoleonic Wars, famously described his own soldiers as the scum of the earth. Food for powder. Mortal men. Mortal men. Suffering and dying was what soldiers were for. But in the Crimean War, this had already begun to change. In the course of a year, a year that saw the bloodbath of Inkerman and the horrors of the Crimean winter, the British public had gone from seeing soldiers as lower-class gutter rats to as to noble Tommies fighting for English liberty. Russian aristocrats like Tolstoy were finding the noble spirit in the Russian serf. French officers were learning that soldiers' morale, welfare, and inspiration were a major factor in victory and defeat. In the demands of the modern battlefield, the psychological impact of mass firepower, and the chaos of battles like Inkerman revealed a new kind of warfare, one that required a new kind of soldier. The world was changing. Warfare was changing. This meant that the soldiers had to change. And that meant that society had to change. This is the central theme of this series, that the changes in European society, economy, politics, and culture produced changes in the military and vice versa. New technologies, new ideas, new beliefs had given a greater worth to the lower classes, the people that the concert of Europe and the reactionary great powers had spent so much energy keeping down. The Crimean War was a catalyst for these changes. It was helping to reshape what it meant to be a citizen, a person, a human, in the eyes of the world. The war took place in an age when the common man or woman was becoming recognized as a person of worth, of value. People were awakening to the fact that soldiers were worth more, deserved more, than to be food for powder. Today, we will end the Crimean War. Most of today's action will involve the final horrifying struggles of the Siege of Sevastopol, the decisive event of the Crimean War. We will wrap up all the loose ends and see peace come about, though who wins or loses the peace might surprise you. And of course, we will see the effect the Crimean War has had on the memory of Europe and the world. And at the end, I will finally tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. Because this is the last round of the Crimean War, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, mess with a thermostat, repot your plants, do the thing you need to do. So fix your bayonet, keep your head down, and wait for the signal to go over the top into no man's land. Sevastopol will fall, must fall. It's our only way home. 
let's finish the campaign. Captain Charles Jean-Jacques Joseph Ardant du Pique was a brilliant young officer. Born in 1821 in southwestern France, he was a boisterous and often unruly child, and his parents, of course, decided that a military career would do him good. Ardant du Pique was sent to the military academy at Saint Cyr, founded by Napoleon, and graduated in, with honors in 1844. He was admired for the care and devotion he showed to his soldiers, as well as his strong moral principles. Dupique openly opposed the rise of Napoleon III, even though it risked his career. When the Crimean War began, Ardant Dupique went to the east with the 9th Chasseurs Light Infantry Battalion. He caught cholera and nearly died during the French Army's stay at Varna, causing him to be shipped back to France and miss out on the battles of Alma and Inkerman. But Dupique would conduct questionnaires of the French soldiers who had fought at the Alma, and use this data to generate new theories of combat, that the moral and psychological realities of modern combat had changed the nature of warfare, that soldiers needed to be able to think for themselves and trust their junior leaders. They needed to be inspired and motivated, not treated like pawns or tools, that new styles of warfare required a new style of soldier. Captain Ardant Dupique rejoined his regiment on the Crimea in December 1854 and would take part in the final assaults on Sevastopol. He is our final protagonist, our officer. He would see soldiers as more than food for powder. Spring had come to the Crimea. The Allied soldiers around Sevastopol stared in amazement at the blooming of colorful flowers and listened to the chirping of birds. The good news was that the winter was over, the supply problems were mostly resolved, and reinforcements were arriving. The bad news was that this meant that the fighting was about to resume. The war of attrition on the Crimea was ramping up with a vengeance. By April 1855, the siege of Sevastopol had already lasted for six months. Six months of raids, bombardments, assaults, hand-to-hand -hand fighting in the trenches. Night raids were common as Russians suddenly swarmed into the Allied positions, thrown back by Highlanders or Zouavs or Turks. Artillery and musket duels were daily. Some days it was relatively calm, other days hundreds of men died. It was a grinding positional battle as each side tried to outdig, outblast, and outshoot the other. It was never quiet on the Crimean front. Allied reinforcements were on their way. Lots of French soldiers, new British recruits, Omer Pasha's Ottoman regulars, the Nizami troops, and Player 5 has entered the arena, the final entrant into the Crimean War. On January 26, 1855, the Italian Kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia had joined the British, French, and Ottomans in their war against Russia. On May 8, 1855, 17,000 blue-coated Sardinian troops arrived on the Crimea. The Italian newbies impressed everyone with their high discipline and strong bearing, with Mary Seacole judging them the best-behaved army on the Crimea. Why would the Italians join this war? <laughs> well, not out of the goodness of their hearts, I can tell you that. This was part of a long-term strategy by the Sardinian Prime Minister, Count Camillo Cavour, who wanted to get in Britain and France's good graces. 
Cavour was someone who, like Napoleon III, saw opportunity in crisis in the breakdown of the Consort of Europe. He saw with the war with Russia and the breakup of the Consort of Europe as a window of opportunity in his personal quest, the nationalist quest for Italian unification, and believed that helping the Allies in the Crimean War would earn Sardinia some street cred, some favors to call in down the road. And this worked, by the way, as we'll find out. But anyway, the Allied army on the Crimea was now stronger than ever. The French, under General Francois Canrobert, could count 120,000 soldiers. The British had 32,000, still under Lord Raglan. Omer Pasha's Ottoman troops numbered 55,000. With the Sardinians together, the Allied force comprised an enormous 224,000 men, a massive force supplied by the railroads and factories and steamships of the world's industrial powers, Britain and France. By now, the Allies outnumbered the Russians on the Crimea by a significant margin. The Russians couldn't increase their troop numbers too much, their logistics weren't supported. Prince Gorchakov commanded the main Russian field army, headquartered at Simferopol on the Crimea. But he wasn't the main Allied problem. That would be the city. Sevastopol was the most fortified city in the world in 1855, with hardened fortresses linked by interlocking trenches and batteries and redoubts and obstacles, defended by thousands of soldiers and the sailors of the Black Sea Fleet, led by the surviving two of our trio of Russian heroes, the inspiring Admiral Pavel Nakimov and the brilliant siege engineer Colonel Eduard Todleben. Todleben's doctrine of siege warfare was called active defense, the Russians weren't sitting back passively and waiting for the enemy to come to them. They were actively improving their positions to counter the enemy siege craft. Whenever the Allies tried to dig forward to build a new battery, they found newly built Russian positions blocking their path. This forced them to attack, resulting in heavy losses, or cede that position to the Russians. The Sevastopol defenses were like an evolving organism, or like a mutating virus, built, rebuilt, extended, expanded. How do you crack the nut when the nut keeps changing shape and actively fighting back? So you have the massive allied army, well supplied, armed with the most advanced military technology in the world, including new types of heavy artillery. And you have the Russians inside a massive fortress system led by charismatic heroes prepared to fight to the death. An unstoppable force versus an immovable object. This is gonna suck. Welcome to the Siege of Sevastopol, the decisive point of the Crimean War. Remember, the Allies have a set of peace terms on the table, the Four Points released in December 1854. But Tsar Alexander II was not yet at the table, he was not willing to accept them. The Allies needed to win a decisive victory to force him to sit down at the table. The other fronts of the war, the Baltic and the Caucasus, had produced only stalemates. In the end, the Crimea was where the war would be won or lost. So how do you solve a problem like Sevastopol? A head-on attack would be horribly costly and probably unsuccessful. They could pound the city with artillery, but they'd been doing that. The Allies launched a big bombardment back in April, a 10-day long pummeling with 500 guns that fired 160,000 rounds, twice the size of the big October bombardment we discussed in part three. Sevastopol had shot back, and had survived, and nothing had been accomplished except making everyone really miserable. So with things at Sevastopol in a deadlock, Allied leaders got frustrated. One of them was French Emperor Napoleon III, who was still trying to live up to his uncle's glorious reputation. 
He even talked about going to the Crimea himself to take personal command, which was such a universally acknowledged as such a horrible idea that even his yes men were like, Your Majesty, no, no. So he settled for bothering General Canrobert with confusing instructions that only made everything worse. Napoleon III was the first modern dictator, and thanks to this wonderful new invention called the telegraph, he could do what all modern dictators love to do, <coughs> Putin, micromanage his high command. Everyone kept pitching new plans. A ground offensive, another amphibious landing, sending troops to the Caucasus, but all of this was beating around the bush. Lord Raglan was convinced that taking Sevastopol was the only way to end the Crimean War, and stop clock twice a day, he was right. But you can't blame the other Allied leaders from looking over that mass of fortresses and bunkers and trying to see any other way. So the Allies decided to send an expedition against the coastal town of Kerch, on the eastern tip of the Crimean Peninsula. Capturing it would place pressure on Sevastopol's supply line, and also give the Allied sailors something to do other than get drunk and swab the decks and probably punch each other or whatever they were doing. The expedition for Kerch left on May 3rd, but then Canrobert received a telegram from Napoleon III giving him different instructions. Canrobert, who was a political appointee, a toady, obeyed these orders to the letter, as always, and said, No problem, boss. He ordered the Kerch expedition to turn around and come back. The British were furious, with even Raglan, usually so nice and polite, almost simmering with anger. The British soldiers, with their usual sense of humor, started calling Canrobert Robert Cant, as in Robert can't do anything. This was the last straw. Tired of being micromanaged by his dictator, Canrobert resigned on May 17th, turning command over to General Aimable Jean-Jacques Pellissier. Pellissier was a short, hot-headed man, tough and stubborn. He was also very independent. If he didn't like Napoleon's orders, he just ignored them. And unlike Napoleon, Pellissier believed that Sevastopol had to be their primary objective. Enough of this messing around. Let's take this city and end this thing. For the first time since the war had begun, the Allies had a decisive general with a clear objective. Take Sevastopol, end the war. Pellissier agreed to relaunch the Kerch expedition and actually let them go finish the job this time. On May 22nd, a force of 7,000 French, 3,000 British, and 5,000 Ottoman troops sailed for Kerch and easily captured the city two days later. But the Allies went far beyond just destroying the military facilities. In a shameful breakdown of discipline, they basically sacked Kerch, looting, burning, pillaging, and yes, raping numerous women. Even the city's museum, full of antiquities from classical Greek settlements on the Crimea, was destroyed. From Kerch, the Allied navies ravaged the Sea of Azov, attacking multiple towns like Azov, Mariupol, and Taganrog. And just as in the Black and White Sea, they weren't too picky about whether they were bombarding military or civilian targets. Now, it's hard to say how much of an impact this little expedition had. Answer seems to be probably not much. But it did boost Allied morale, and they were going to need all the morale they could get. Because Raglan and Pellissier had decided that it was time for an all-out assault on the defenses of Sevastopol. The Allied attacks would focus on two key Russian fortresses, the fortresses they considered to be the key to the Russian defenses. The French would go for the second bastion, called the Malakov. The British would attack the third bastion, called the Great Redan. 
But to pave the way for these attacks, other strong points would have to be taken first. These were covering strong points that Todleben had placed in front of these major fortresses. The Mamelon, the White Works, the Quarry Pits. The Allied infantry would have to claw their way forward, climb out of their trenches, go over the top, and cross no man's land with their rifles as small arms and artillery ripped into them. If this reminds you of anything, yes, we'll get to that. See, everyone knew this was going to be a bloodbath, but there was no other way to end the war. The only way out was through. The preliminary attacks began on June 7th, 1855, after a rain of shells that stunned and rattled the defenders. General Bosquet was commanding the French assault, and Fanny Duberly watched the general crying as his men climbed out of their trenches into the open. The Zouavs were up front, racing in a mass towards the Mamelon position, as fire and shells ripped into them from every corner. One French officer remembered the assault on the Mamelon. Hoisting one another up, we scaled the walls. What happened next I cannot describe. It was a scene of carnage. Fighting like madmen, our soldiers spiked their guns, and the few Russians who were brave enough to fight us were all slaughtered. The French seizure of the Mamelon was horribly costly, costing them almost 5,500 casualties, France's worst day of the Crimean War so far. The British on the other side of the line attacked and captured the quarries. The casualties there were bad enough, but this was the warm-up. Now the Allies were in a position to take on the real beasts, the Malakov and the Redan. The British and French would attack on the 18th of June, the 40th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, to symbolize their new friendship. For Lord Raglan, a Waterloo veteran, it was the anniversary of the loss of his arm. But the Allied soldiers were uneasy. They would have to rush several hundred meters of open ground, cover with obstacles, and scale the walls of the Malakov and the Redan, all under fire. The night before the attack, soldiers prayed, wrote letters home, and gave away possessions. Many of them wrote their name and home address on paper and pinned it to their uniform. Dog tags had not been invented yet. They were going to be after this. Here's what one French captain wrote to his brother that night. I shake you by the hand, my brother, and want you to know I love you. Now, my God, have pity on me. I commend myself to you with sincerity. Let your will be done. Long live France. Today our eagle must soar above Sevastopol. Sergeant William Jowett, our soldier, in a letter to his sister Susan. My dear Susan, I cannot help smiling when I read part of your letters. You seem so anxious about me. Recollect your brother is a soldier, and if he dies a soldier's death, it will be a noble one. Think, my dear girl, the cause we are fighting for is liberty, which is dearer than life to any true-bred Englishman. But if this whole thing wasn't going to be hard enough, Allied High Command snarls, what else, made it even worse. When General Bosquet disagreed with portions of the plan, especially the lack of a preliminary artillery bombardment, Pellissier lost his temper and fired him, leaving the attack in the hands of an officer who didn't know the plan, with only hours to go. The British and French soldiers assembled in their trenches hours before dawn on June 18, 1855, Bayonets fixed, cartridge boxes full, carrying ladders and ropes to scale the walls of the fortresses. Their fingers twitched, their hearts thudded. They gripped their rifles and muttered complaints, curses, prayers. 
The Russians knew an attack was coming, and they prepared as well, setting up sandbags, watching the enemy lines, fingering orthodox icons around their necks. And guys, all six of our protagonists are within a few miles of each other on the 18th of June. They were all here. In Sevastopol Hospital, Darya Mikhailova stood by Dr. Pirogov, listening to the rumble of guns, waiting for the stream of bodies to come from the front lines. In the 4th Bastion, Lieutenant Leo Tolstoy talked to his soldiers, the simple serfs he was coming to admire and love. Across no man's land, Captain Ardant Dupique paced in his bomb-proof, thinking about all he had learned and seen about men in combat. Nell Butler worked in the field hospital of the 95th foot, counting her homemade stitches and poultices, mending her husband's clothes, waiting for the casualties to come. Sergeant Jowett steadied his new recruits as they gathered at the lip of the front line, ready to go over the top. And Mary Seacole made her way to the trenches, wandering through in her bright dress, bags of sandwiches in her hands, a medical kit on her hip. They were all here on the 18th of June. At 3 o'clock in the morning, the first French assault wave emerged from their trenches and raced towards the giant Malakov fortress, 200 meters away. But the plan had gone wrong. Thanks to the inexperience of the general commanding this first wave, they had attacked too early. The second wave wasn't ready yet, and the Russians had known they were coming. The night sky went from black to red as hundreds of Russian cannons and muskets opened up, chewing into the attacking French. The second wave met the same relentless wall of fire. As the French attack collapsed, men laid down refused to go forward as the clawing chaos unraveled around them. They never got close. It was a slaughter. Seeing the French attack go to pieces, Lord Raglan had to make a decision. The plan was that the French would take the Malakov first, clearing the way for the British to take the Redan. The Malakov's guns covered the approaches to the Redan, so this was a necessary prerequisite. But watching the French get slaughtered, Raglan felt like, well, it wouldn't be honorable to let them attack alone. It wouldn't be noble. It wouldn't be nice. So Raglan ordered his men over the top. At 5.30, the British took a deep breath, climbed into the open, and charged. Fanny Duberly, watching with Lord Raglan, described, Such a storm of shot, grape, shell, and musketry as had never before annoyed the ears of heaven. The redcoats sprinted over 200 meters of open ground as the storm of steel churned the earth around them like a machine. They leaned forward as they ran like they were walking into a hurricane, the fire ripping hundreds of them apart in the early morning light. Sergeant Jowett was one of the few to make it anywhere close to the Redan. Although it was a miracle, for the grape fell as thick as hail all around me, I believe it was worse than either Alma or Inkerman. The grape, canister, and musket shot falling all around me in showers. He watched the beloved Colonel Ye, who had led the 7th Fusiliers since the Alma, blown away by a hail of musket balls. The British huddled, paralyzed, screaming under the fire of the Redan. Raglan was there to watch it all, his kind old face pale at what he was seeing. When he approached one officer lying on a stretcher, he said mildly, my poor young gentleman, I hope you are not too badly hurt. But the officer suddenly rose from the stretcher, shouting curses, telling Lord Raglan that he was responsible for every drop of blood shed that day. The redcoats poured back into the trenches from no man's land and refused to go back out again. 
mere flesh and blood could not withstand that storm of steel. The attack of June 18th was a fiasco. The attacking regiments had been decimated, their soldiers lying in heaps. Mary C. Cole wailed at the loss of her friends from the 97th Foot, one of her old Jamaica regiments. And Lord Raglan looked at what he had wrought. One thousand men, men who had survived the Alma and Balaclava and Inkerman, had lasted through the terrible winter, had been nursed by Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole and Nell Butler, had survived all that, only to lie broken, shattered, at the foot of the Redan. And something inside Lord Raglan broke. He had been feeling the pressure of his command, the pressure of his failures, but looking over no man's land in front of Sevastopol, this kind old man who never should have been in charge in the first place, suddenly realized what he had done, what he had caused to happen. All the mistakes, the careless failures, the incompetence, it seemed to hit him all at once. I have been very hard on Raglan, and I think he deserves it. But it's hard not to feel just a little bit sorry for this aristocratic old man who was so out of his time. He, like so many of his men, was unprepared for modern combat, and like so many of his men, he was unable to cope. He was confined to his bed, and ten days later, on June 28, 1855, Lord Raglan died. The official diagnosis was cholera, but Raglan's physician always insisted that something had broken in that old Waterloo veteran, 40 years to the day after his great battle, when he looked on the slaughter of the 18th of June looked at what he had done, the men he had written off as food for powder. Florence Nightingale offered the typical historical verdict on the British commander. It was impossible not to love him. I did. He was not a very great general, but he was a very good man. More good men were going to die because the siege of Sevastopol dragged on and on and on, and on. The world had never seen anything like it. There had been intense sieges, heavy bombardments, bloody battles, but nothing like this. Nothing that the armies of the Crimea had ever seen or heard of prepared them for the summer of 1855. Now we're into nine months of this siege. Nine months of trench digging, artillery, rifle fire, artillery, rain, artillery, mud, artillery, stress and heat and the dust and the smoke and the blood and the artillery. It seemed like it would never end. And the longer it went on, the more people began to ask, are we going to spend another winter on the Crimea? They could probably think of literally nothing worse than that. What made this different? What made this new? There had been sieges before, but nothing this long, this intense, this extended, with this level of firepower concentrated in a small space. Malta was intense, but it lasted a couple of months. Gibraltar was long, but it was very low, very, um, there would be quiet for months but nothing like this. Hundreds, over a thousand guns, with shells and projectiles falling like rain. In the past, battles had lasted a few hours, and sieges only had brief periods of intensity and weeks of near silence. 
This was a far cry from the pretty lines of troops, banners flying, bands playing, that they had all been trained to expect. The battlefield was too wide, weapons were too lethal, the concentration of firepower too overwhelming. This was a new kind of war, with new effects in the human body. Advanced artillery and small arms made wounds much more serious and life-threatening. The old low-velocity musket ball was nowhere near as dangerous as the high-velocity Minier rifle ball, which shattered bones and left enormous holes in the flesh. The plethora of high-explosive shells had devastating impacts on the body, but also the mental health of the soldiers facing them. This is where we get some of the first documented cases of TBI, traumatic brain injury, though they didn't call it that yet, where repeated concussive forces rattle the brain inside the skull. The stress was overwhelming, the grinding attrition, the bitter grapple, the constant fear and paranoia and trauma started to tell on the human mind. In the modern day, we have names for this kind of phenomenon. It's been called combat fatigue, shell shock, combat stress, PTSD. The Crimean War soldiers called it trench madness. Something new and wonderful for this new and wonderful kind of warfare. Suicides skyrocketed. One French Zouave, a long-term veteran, just stood up one day, said he'd had enough, and put a bullet through his head. Soldiers were not pawns or cannon fodder or food for powder. They weren't moved around the board like mindless robots. They couldn't handle this for much longer. Every day, the siege of Sevastopol swept hundreds more men and women into its gaping, insatiable maul, and it went on and on and on and on. When was it going to end? What turned the tide at Sevastopol wasn't all the stuff that people like to think win wars, especially the romantics of the 19th century with their emphasis on bravery and, you know, the soul and the human spirit. It wasn't courage, not brilliant strategy or tactics, not a great leader or a clever trick, not even manpower. The Allies had one thing in their corner, the Industrial Revolution. The forges and factories of Britain and France pumped out hundreds of cannon and thousands of artillery shells, transported by railroad and steamboat, rolled right up to the front lines by the Grand Crimea Railway, fed into the massive batteries overlooking Sevastopol. Artillery is an extremely logistics-heavy weapon system, and only the Allied industrial economy could sustain this level of firepower. Every day, the Allies drenched Sevastopol in high explosives, and the Russians had no response, no comeback, to the repeated hammer blows smashing into their defenses. Don't get me wrong, they were shooting back. Nell Butler, working at her field hospital in the trenches, was almost buried by a shell that collapsed her bunker. But as time went on, it was clear that the Russians were losing the exchange. During June, even apart from the major assaults, the Russians were losing 300 to 400 men a day. By August, they were losing 800 an Inkerman every two weeks. The Allies had 800 guns, 150 guns for every kilometer of front line, with the ability to maintain an apocalyptic barrage of 75,000 rounds per day. It was a level of concentrated, sustained firepower unheard of before the Industrial Revolution. There wasn't really a decisive moment of the Crimean War, no turning point. No battle or event where you can say, here is where the Allies went from losing to winning. What determined the Siege of Sevastopol, what determined the Crimean War, was mass production, steam-powered logistics, and the overwhelming force of modern firepower. Guys, 
what does this look like? It doesn't look like Waterloo or Bunker Hill or Culloden anymore. This is something new. Something that looks more like Verdun, Stalingrad, Iwo Jima, Quezon, Fallujah, Donbass. Welcome to the first industrial war. Welcome to the first modern war. And in this contest of economic systems, Russia's peasant economy was losing. They could not support this logistically. The horses and carts carrying every shell and every ounce of food into the, into, into the Crimea, into Sevastopol, they could not even hope to compete with the railroad and the steamboat and the factory. They were being ground into pieces. Sevastopol was in ruins. Most civilians left. And the trio of heroes was gone. On June 22nd, Colonel Todleben, the great genius of active defense, was severely wounded and had to be evacuated. And on June 28th, Admiral Nakimov, the hero of Sinope, the sailor's friend, the heart and soul of Sevastopol's defense, was shot in the face from the parapet of the Redan. His funeral was attended by the entire city, with even the Allies ceasing their bombardment out of respect for the fallen leader. But the heart and soul seemed to go out of the resistance. The sheer weight of the bombardment, the death of Nakimov, the massive losses. Russian morale was on the point of collapse. And Prince Gorchakov, the Tsar's commander on the Crimea, knew it. He told the Tsar, look, your majesty, we can't do this much longer. Sevastopol is going to fall any week now. You got to know when to hold and when to fold, and the time to fold is here. But the Tsar would not have it. He demanded that Gorchakov launch an attack to save Sevastopol. Walking in his father's footsteps, Tsar Alexander II wrote on August 3rd that, Your daily losses in Sevastopol underline what I have told you many times before in my letters, the necessity to do something decisive to end this frightful massacre. I think I said before, the urge to do something is one of the most dangerous impulses for a leader to have. Gorchakov really did not want to launch this attack, but orders were orders. Well, guys, let's go attack something. The Russians chose to attack near the Chernaya River, north of the Light Brigade's Valley of Death. This is another in the battle series of Balaclava and Inkerman, same basic objective, a strike at the Allied rear to relieve the siege of Sevastopol. But the Allies were in a much better position in 1855 than in 1854, and the Russians had not gotten better at their tactics. The area Gorchakov planned to attack was a series of high ridges manned by 18,000 French and 9,000 Sardinian troops. The Sardinians were probably like, awesome, we finally get to do something. Or maybe they weren't. The plan for the Battle of the Chernaya was pretty typical for the Russians in this war. The orders were confusing. There were two generals, General Nikolai Reed on the right and General Pavel Leprandi on the left, who didn't really understand what they were supposed to do. The attackers would have to cross a river under enemy fire, always a wonderful thing to do. And Gorchakov wasn't sure which attack would be stronger. He would decide in the middle of the battle where to commit his reserves. So this went about like you'd expect. On August 16th, 1855, the Russians came storming across the Chernaya with 47,000 infantry, 10,000 cavalry, and 270 field guns. Both the French and the Italians were in strong, entrenched positions, and they had seen the attack coming. When General Leprandi's attack against the Sardinians gained a little ground, he captured like an observation post, polite applause, Gorchakov decided to place his main weight on the left, and sent a message to General Reed on the right, telling him literally, 
It is time to begin the thing. Holy crap, and I thought Raglan's orders sucked. Begin the thing? What kind of... Attack? Bombard? Retreat? Are we starting the Lord of the Rings marathon? What do you want, Gorchakov? Gorchakov meant for Reed to start an artillery bombardment. Though how you get that from begin the thing is anyone's best guess. Clear as mud. But Reed decided to launch a frontal attack, splashing across the river and storming the heights above the Chernaya. The Russians ran into their inevitable destruction with French rifle and artillery fire, cutting them to pieces. Mary C. Cole had rolled out with a wagon full of food and medicine to help the wounded and witness the attack. She said, I saw the Russians cross and recross the river. I saw their officers cheer and wave them on in the coolest, bravest manner until they were shot down by scores. We saw the Russians fall back slowly in good order, while the dark-plumed Sardinians and red-pantalooned French spread out in pursuit and formed a picture so enticingly beautiful that we forgot the suffering and death they left behind. When it was over, Mother Seacole descended to attend to the wounded, including the Russians. The Battle of the Chernaya was a miserable failure, the last in a series of Russian battlefield disasters on the Crimea. Lieutenant Tolstoy, who had observed the battle from his artillery battery, was furious and disheartened by the defeat and blamed the incompetence of the Russian commanders. Prince Gorchakov blamed General Reed. He had been killed in the battle, so guess what? He's the perfect scapegoat because he can't defend himself. Besides, Gorchakov never wanted to launch this attack anyway. The Tsar said do something and hate to say I told you, boss. Though 10,000 casualties is a high price for I told you so. The French lost only 1,500, the Sardinians 250. The Sardinians had done pretty well, too, pretty well in the battle, so they were doing their best to earn that favor, quote, hint, hint, that favor they wanted from Britain and France down the road. The failure at the Chernaya was Russia's last attempt to save Sevastopol. The Allies were now pitching six shells into the city for every one shell the Russians fired back. This is a ratio that had gone from two for one to four for one to six for one over the course of the siege. It was just ramping up with no end in sight. And the day after the Chernaya, Pelissier cranked up the carnage, an unbroken barrage for the next ten days. The Allies were amping up for one more assault, one more push. Prince Gorchakov already had one foot out the door. He knew what the Battle of the Chernaya meant, like Sevastopol is doomed, it's only a matter of time. He had a massive pontoon bridge built linking the north and south sides of Sevastopol to prepare for the inevitable evacuation. Despite their hopeless situation, many of Sevastopol's defenders were determined to hold. Even though we were defending a half-destroyed Sevastopol, essentially a phantom of a town, without any more significance except for its name, we prepared ourselves to fight for it to the last man in the streets. The French and the British planned to take another bite at both the Malakov and the Redan. That, like, these were... It was a slaughter, why would they do that again? Well, because these are still the two weakest points of the Sevastopol defenses. Imagine attacking anywhere else. The British were now led by General Sir James Simpson, who was a general. Like, there's nothing to say about this guy. He wasn't really interesting in any way, just a kind of me crappy, mediocre, store-brand British general. Pelissier, by now, was the one really leading things on the Crimea, the one who was directing the battle. He planned one big honking attack on September 8th, 1855. 
it was time to finally, finally end this thing. The French had fixed a lot of their problems from the first attack of 18th of June. They would deploy 35,000 men to attack multiple strong points, along with 2,000 Sardinians. They had dug their way to 20 meters away from the outer defenses of the Malakovs. They don't have to travel across 20 meters of ground instead of 200. General Bosquet, the best allied general in the Crimea, was given full command of the assault. The attack was planned for midday when the Russian guard shift would be changing. To avoid the confusion of the last attack, for the first time in history, the French officers synchronized their watches before the assault. And Pelissier turned the artillery up to 11 more, more, more shells plastered Sevastopol and the Malakov, which was already half ruined, like a rolling earthquake. Captain Ardant du Pique would be commanding one of the assault companies. Famous in his Chasseur regiment for inspiring and bonding with his men, he was practicing theories he would later put into writing. Nothing can wisely be prescribed in any army without exact knowledge of the fundamental instrument, man, and his state of mind, his morale, at the instant of combat. The man is the first weapon of battle. Let us study the soldier, for it is he who brings reality to it. To win in this new, modern kind of war, officers had to lead, inspire, motivate. They had to see their men as more than food for powder. The assault came on September 8th, 1855, a year minus six days since the Allies had first landed on the Crimea. The Russians were in the middle of their shift change, taking advantage of the recent downtick in artillery fire to rest, lie down just a minute, enjoy a few minutes without the constant shelling, although there was a reason the French had stopped firing. Because from the French line, suddenly, came a rapid drumbeat, the sound of bugles, and a band playing La Marseillaise. And 9,000 blue-coated men exploded from the trenches, the Zouaves in the lead. They sprinted the 20 meters to the fortress, raised their ladders, climbed. Before the Russians could even react, this human torrent, like a sudden fire hose of screaming bluecoats, was across the ditch, up the walls, and inside the defenses of the Malakov. The French were like a flood, shooting and stabbing their way through one battery after another. Within minutes, the panicked Russians were fleeing, and the tricolor rose over the battered ruin of the Malakov. But it wasn't going to be that easy. The Russians were surprised at first, but they immediately counterattacked with everything they had, and fighting erupted all along the lines of Sevastopol. It was some of the fiercest combat of the war so far. In sheer numbers, the largest battle of the war so far. Everyone pitching in everything they had. Every soldier and sailor in the Sevastopol defenses grabbed his gun and ran to the lines to fight hand-to-hand -hand with the French and the Italians. One Russian soldier remembered. Time after time, we charged them with our bayonets. We had no idea what our objective was. We simply hurled ourselves forward, totally intoxicated by the excitement of the fight. The air was filled with a thick red dust from the bloody ground, making it impossible for us to see the enemy. It was another soldier's battle, like Inkerman, another confused mess where the soldier's morale and individual initiative were everything. The French did not have it all their way. Captain Dupique led his company forward, screaming over the crash of rifles and cannons, sword in hand. He, in the midst of this carnage, he led a dozen men into the central bastion, a secondary assault to the surprise attack on the Malakov. 
but he and his men were soon isolated and captured. Captain Dupic would spend the rest of the war in a Russian prison camp. But despite the Russian counterattacks, despite the furious combat on the parapets, the French held the Malakov. And now it was the British turn. As soon as they saw the French flag rise above the Malakov to the north, the British Light and 2nd Divisions gripped their rifles, gritted their teeth, and went over the top toward the Redan. A thousand men were in the first wave, including Sergeant William Jowett. The storming party reached the ditch in front of the Redan, hoisted their ladders, then began to climb. The Russians were shooting point-blank from the top of the parapet, and the crossfire from other batteries was murderous. A few British soldiers did manage to break into the Redan, but they were killed or captured. The morale of the attack collapsed. Men lay paralyzed, just shoving their face into the ground, while others ran back to the trenches. They ignored their officers, who screamed at them, threatened them, beat them with their swords to try to drive them forward. They had been worn down by months of bombardment and slaughter. In this new hell of modern combat, old styles of leadership, old ideas of discipline and glory were no longer enough. Men were only flesh and blood. Sergeant William Jowett was at the foot of the Redan when he was caught by a bursting shell. The shrapnel tore into his right leg and arm, leaving him wounded, having to be carried from the field. He wrote to his sister Susan that he was alright, it was a slight wound, he was, he was going to make it. He was wrong. The British sat in their trenches, defeated, looking bitterly at the triumphant French flag waving over the Malakoff. The final British battle of the Crimean War had been a bloody defeat that cost them 2,500 casualties. The French lost 7,500 men and the Russians nearly 13,000. The worst day of the Crimean War, worse than Inkerman. But the Russian lines were breached. The Malakov was the key to Sevastopol, a position from which the Allies could fire directly into the town or even at the harbor, including the critical pontoon bridge. When the Russians failed to retake the Malakov on September 8th, Prince Gorchakov realized that Sevastopol could no longer be held. A massive rainstorm lashed the Crimea as the Russians evacuated overnight. Supplies were burned, military buildings were sabotaged, and guns were spiked. The Black Sea Fleet's sailors were furious. Some had to be dragged away, almost, heartbroken at abandoning their city, their home for many of them, the citadel that they had held for almost a year. Lieutenant Leo Tolstoy turned 27 that day. I wept when I saw the town in flames and the French flags on our bastions. A Russian nurse described the scene in a letter. The whole city was engulfed in flames, from everywhere the sound of explosions. It was a scene of terror and chaos. The night brought tears to my eyes. I seldom cry. How hard it has been to experience and see all of this. It would have been easier to die. She and the remaining soldiers, sailors, and civilians waded across the pontoon bridge to the north side of Sevastopol as their city burned behind them. The Allies awoke on September 9th, 1855, to find the enemy positions deserted. The Redan was abandoned. The ruined city was quiet except for the groans of the wounded and the crackling of flames. It took days for the fires to die down and for the Allies to venture into the ruins. Mary C. Cole was the first woman to enter the city 
hot on the heels of the British, French, Italian, and Ottoman soldiers who gazed at the prize they had taken so long to gain. There was lots of looting and binge drinking, but that's to be expected. It was over. It was finally over. The siege of Sevastopol had lasted 349 days. The Allies had won through sheer force, attrition, firepower, and logistics. The French had gained their glorious victory, even if the British had been denied one. And now, maybe, the nations of Europe could start talking peace. But before peace came, there were two more military events to shape the end of the Crimean War. In October 1855, a few weeks after the fall of Sevastopol, the Allied navies assaulted the fortress of Kenburn at the mouth of the Dnieper River near Kherson. This would close off Russian trade down the Dnieper and serve as a jumping off point for any future assault into Ukraine. But Kenburn is noteworthy mainly for what the French brought to the party. These were three experimental ships called floating batteries, each with 18 guns and four inches of iron armor. The first steam-powered ironclads. The world would have to wait seven more years for the first ironclad versus ironclad battle, the Monitor versus the Merrimack, but the Battle of Kenburn was the first use of ironclads in action. The ironclads were Napoleon III's pet project. Allied naval engineers had noted the power of explosive shells at the Battle of Sinope and the vulnerability of wooden ships to modern fortresses and artillery. From now on, to stand up against modern firepower, ships would have to be armored. And the three French ironclads proved themselves in the capture of Kenburn on October 17, 1855. They received 70 direct hits, none of which did more than dent their armor. This was a successful test run for the ironclad as a concept, basically. The British took notes, immediately started building some of their own, and everyone knew what they were meant for. If the war went into 1856, the iron ships would be sent to the Baltic against the walls of Kronstadt, the Guardian of St. Petersburg. The other engagement, the final battle of the Crimean War, would take place on the Caucasus Front. Throughout the summer, the Russian general Moraviev had been gathering his strength and preparing to assault the fortress city of Kars. The Ottoman army in the Caucasus was in poor shape, but they still held Kars with almost 20,000 men, led by a British general, William Fenwick Williams. Why would you do that to your child? His name was William William Williams. Why? Kars was on a high plateau, defended by a series of fortresses. But the Russians were determined to take the city, especially after the loss of Sevastopol, as a way to patch up their wounded pride and gain more leverage in the peace talks. Ottoman General Omer Pasha, commanding the good, high-quality Turkish forces on the Crimea, knew that the Russian attack was coming. He kept begging Pelissier and British General Simpson to let him take his troops to defend the Caucasus, but they refused to let him go until Sevastopol had fallen, which was pretty selfish considering this whole war had been started to help and save the Ottoman Empire. By mid-September, with the city in allied hands, Omer could finally embark his troops and head for the port of Sukhumi in modern-day Georgia. In the meantime, the siege of Kars had begun. It was an epic struggle, a bitter fight in the mountain fastness of eastern Turkey, worthy of a decent chunk of this series alone, but I'm running out of time. <laughs> The first Russian assault on September 29th was a fiasco, the Russians charging forward in their old columns, again, to get slaughtered by Turkish musket fire. But after this, Moraviev resorted to hunger, 
surrounding and blockading the city to starve it out. It was a miserable ordeal. The Ottoman troops fought magnificently, but that hunger took its toll. The horses were eaten, diseases broke out, the grain supplies were gone, people were digging for roots, women were abandoning their children on General Williams' doorstep. Something had to give. Omer Pasha was on his way. He marched his army of 40,000 men south through Georgia, trying to reach the city in time. But the Caucasus' terrible terrain, winter was on its way, and Russian forces stood between him and the siege lines. On November 7th, he defeated Russian forces on the Ingur River, but rain and fatigue still slowed his advance. The delays on the Crimea had been fatal, and the Turks were out of time. Omer Pasha was still miles away when Kars finally surrendered on November 26th, 1855. 18,000 Ottoman troops laid down their arms, and the Crimean War's last big military action was over. Or was it? Sevastopol had fallen, the Russians were on the back foot, and the Allies were stronger than ever. Lots of people wanted the war to end, but some didn't, and they might have gotten their way. Was the war over? Or would 1856 see more men sacrificed as food for powder? Could the Crimean War really be over? The armies on the Crimea certainly thought so. The Allies and Russians stared at each other across Sevastopol Harbor, where the Russians still held the north side. There were small firefights, clashes, but nothing serious. I mean, geez, who would want to do anything, any fighting, after what they'd all just been through? But the fall of Sevastopol did not necessarily mean that the war would end. The Ottomans wanted the war to end. They were done. Uh, the, the fall of Kars opened the Anatolian heartland, the Turkish heartland, to Russian attack in 1856. Napoleon III wanted the war to end. The French people wanted peace, and with the capture of the Malakov, he had his great imperial victory. That was all he'd ever wanted. The Austrians really wanted the war to end to restore the old balance of power and concert of Europe. Come on, guys, let's get the band back together before a bunch of revolutionaries or nationalists kill us all in our sleep. Prussia? Well, Prussia had fallen asleep on the couch and woke up covered in popcorn. Oh, this movie's still going? Wasn't this about, like, a church key or something? Where did all these side characters come from? Why are there metal boats now? But two countries above all had the most invested in this war, had staked the most on it, and dreamed of total victory. If either Britain or Russia failed to back down, the war might continue and transform into the First World War 60 years ahead of schedule. For British Prime Minister Lord Palmerston, Sevastopol had been step one. He believed that now was the time to destroy Russia as a great power in the name of freedom and liberty for all the oppressed peoples of Europe and Asia. He openly admitted that... The main and real object of the war is to curb the aggressive ambition of Russia. We went to war not so much to keep the Sultan in Turkey as to keep the Russians out of Turkey. 
Palmerston wanted to bring in Austria and Sweden, even Prussia, in a grand anti-Russian coalition. He envisioned a massive campaign for 1856, an invasion of Ukraine, an invasion of the Caucasus, a ground attack in Poland, a Baltic fleet of ironclads to pound St. Petersburg into rubble. Palmerston wanted a broad war, a world war, to end the Russian menace once and for all. It was the threat of a Baltic campaign that Russia feared the most. The new ironclads were fearsome and the Royal Navy's power was legendary. Prince Menshikov, the Nadless Wonder, would have commanded St. Petersburg's defenses in the event of an attack, and that filled nobody with confidence. But still, the ball was in Tsar Alexander II's court. He talked like he was still ready to fight, telling his people, Remember 1812. Sevastopol is not Moscow. The Crimea is not Russia. We are still the same Russians, and God is with us. If he really wanted to, Russia could continue the war, fight to the bitter end, turn the Crimean War into the First World War. But when the Tsar polled his ministers in December 1855, they were like, Look, your majesty, our army is in ruins. The peasant economy is collapsing. The serfs are launching uprisings in Ukraine. We are broke. We are almost out of weapons, and we can't produce enough for next year's campaign. We just can't, can't compete with the Western economies, the Western in industries, the Western factories. Your Majesty, it's over. And on December 28th, the Austrians issued an ultimatum. If Russia didn't accept the four points in 1856, they were going to join the war. Tsar Nicholas I, the gendarme of Europe, might have refused to admit defeat. But Tsar Nicholas was dead. His son, Alexander II, had the common sense his father had always lacked. On January 16, 1856, he accepted the Austrian ultimatum. Russia had backed down. But what about Britain? Palmerston wanted to put the pedal to the floor and go. Screw the four points. Let's do this thing. Let's tear them apart. But then Napoleon III politely informed him that if Britain continued the war, they would do it without France. You want to start a world war, knock yourselves out, but we are done. We are out. And Britain knew they could not fight Russia alone. Palmerston, bitter, accepted reality. They would back down. They would have peace. I do have to note one thing. There was a very, very small possibility that if the war had gone into 1856, the United States would have become involved. The Russians seemed to think so, that America would take the opportunity of European distraction to get to work on that Caribbean filibuster empire and join the war on Russia's side. Now, these, this is a pretty slim chance. America was currently on the road to civil war within the next five years. But, you know, weird stuff happens. The possibility was discussed. I don't think the what-ifs of 1856 have been studied enough. Meanwhile, the armies hunkered down on the Crimea for yet another winter. But this time around, the British had it relatively easy. Their supply services worked much better than in the first winter. General Simpson had resigned, and the new British commander was General Edward Codrington, who had led his brigade of the Light Division up the heights of Alma. Codrington paid close attention to logistics, and the British had a much less painful winter. Surprisingly, the French had a bad winter, a really bad one, mainly because their army was so much bigger now and much harder to supply. Their medical issues, especially cholera, skyrocketed. The situation of the previous winter had been reversed. But as they waited, the Allies and Russians moved into a peacetime mentality. 
The British had a track set up for horse races. There were games and parties and even a couple of balls. Mary Seacole's British hotel was always full. Fraternization between Allied and Russian troops became more frequent. A whole bunch of spectators came out to visit the Crimea, see the armies, and see the battlefields. Including the couple of folks we have to mention. About a month after the fall of Sevastopol, three officers of the U.S. Army arrived on the Crimea as military observers, foreign officers on fact-finding missions, to report on the current state of foreign armies. One of them was young Army Captain George B. McClellan, later one of the Union's top generals in the American Civil War. He arrived too late to see the fighting, but he saw the aftermath, the trenches, the railroads, the hospitals, and the ruins of Sevastopol. He came away with the impression that long sieges, organization, and careful attention to logistics were the key to modern warfare, but also a reluctance to repeat the horrific slaughters at the Malakov and the Redan. McClellan took some of the right lessons away from the Crimea, but also a lot of the wrong ones, and these would not be enough to help him against Robert E. Lee. But that's a story a lot of us already know. On February 25th, 1856, the Paris peace talks began in the glittering modern city of Emperor Napoleon III. It was his triumph. Once a pariah state after his uncle's defeat at Waterloo, France had returned to its rightful place, in his eyes, as the center of European politics. It was once again the strongest and most prestigious power in Europe, demonstrated by the tricolor waving over the Malakov. France was on top once again. The Paris peace talks of 1856 were mercifully short. Everyone pretty much already knew where everyone stood, with a few exceptions. The Russians, of course, were trying to avoid harsh terms. The British wanted harsh terms. The Austrians just wanted to go everything to go back to the nice, friendly way it had been before. And Napoleon III, as always, was trying to play some four-dimensional chess. The Russians were prepared to accept the four points, though demilitarizing the Black Sea was a nasty pill to swallow. It was just the price they had to pay for peace. The sticking point came when the British insisted that the Russia had to lose at least some territory, particularly a strip of land in Bessarabia in modern-day Ukraine and Romania. Britain and Austria both insisted on pushing the Russian border back from the Danube, ceding some ground on the Danube River. And surprisingly, it was the French who pushed back against this. Napoleon III ended up brokering a compromise where Russia lost only a small strip of land. He was playing a double game, trying to cozy up to Russia in order to drive a wedge between them and the Austrians, but not too much to endanger his alliance with the British. And Russia was happy to play. Of all the European powers, they were angriest not at France or even Britain, but at Austria for what they saw as backstabbing them when they had been old long-term allies back when the war began. Napoleon used this ill feeling to his advantage to accomplish his one overriding goal, to break up the concert of Europe. You know, so I guess Austria and Russia are the John and Paul of the concert. I'm not going to take that analogy any farther. Most of the issues that had started the war were unresolved, barely resolved, or kicked down the road. Except for that little strip of Bessarabia, no territory changed hands. Both the Russians and the Ottomans agreed to demilitarize the Black Sea. No fleets or naval bases allowed in the Black Sea anymore. The Danubian principalities became basically independent, and within three years, Moldavia and Wallachia united to form Romania. The Christians of the Ottoman Empire would be collectively guaranteed by the powers of Europe. 
and the Ottoman Empire's territories and sovereignty would be respected by all the European powers, in theory. Though the sick man still looked pretty sick, everyone agreed that for now it was best to keep him alive. The treaty was almost finished when someone was like, Hey guys, uh, what about the key? Ah, oh, the key! How did we forget about the stupid key to the stupid church? Does who- what are we gonna do about the key? Napoleon III, who had started this whole crisis over the key way back in 1851-52, just said, eh, you guys can have it. Who cares? I don't care. I don't even know what the whole thing was about. The Orthodox can have the key. And that was that. After all, like I said, it was never really about the key, or even religion. It was about power. These peace terms, the terms that ended the Crimean War, well, they sound pretty weak, don't they? Like, we did all that fighting for this? Yeah, very limited peace terms. Lord Palmerston had wanted a great anti-Russia crusade. Tsar Nicholas dreamed of a holy war. But these guys were in the minority. These were extreme standpoints on the war. This had always, for the rest of them, this had always been a limited war for limited objectives, and the Allies had achieved them. Pushing for anything beyond that would prolong the war. And that was something very few people, especially the soldiers, wanted. The Treaty of Paris was signed on March 30th, 1856 to parades and fireworks. The Crimean War was officially over. Napoleon III basking the glory as the French people cheered, even if they were cheering for peace, not victory. Back on the Crimea, the armies prepared to go home for the first time in over two years. The British oversaw the demolition of Sevastopol's docks, fortresses, and military facilities. The Crimean Railway was dismantled, the trenches were emptied, excess supplies were sold off to the locals, and the dead were reburied in the cemeteries. On July 12, 1856, General Codrington oversaw the final British evacuation from the Crimea, formally turning over Sevastopol, or what was left of it, to the Russians. Behind the Allied armies, the battlefields of Alma, Balaclava, Inkerman, the Malakov were covered with flowers and grazing sheep. The earth of the Crimea healed. The people weren't so lucky. The ethnic Crimeans, the Tatars, would be subjected to merciless repression as payback for what the Russians saw was their betrayal. Russia deported or expelled many of the native Tatars, a real case of ethnic cleansing, and repopulated the Crimea with Russian colonists, a process Stalin would complete in the 1940s, and which leaves its mark on the Crimea today. The exact number of dead of the Crimean War will never be known. The British deaths are pretty reliable at 22,000 military deaths, plus a few hundred army wives and army women. Eleven of Florence Nightingale's 229 nurses died in Constantinople. The French losses were probably around 100,000. The Ottoman military losses are estimated at 45,000, the Sardinians at 2,300, and the Russians a staggering 406,000 military deaths. The majority of all the military deaths were from disease. Added to the civilian losses in the Danubian principalities, the Caucasus, the Crimea, and Ukraine, the collateral damage brought about by economic dislocation, war crimes, slave takings, the ravages of war, and the death toll of the Crimean conflict probably comes to around 800,000 lives, as many, if not more, than the American Civil War. So what did they die for? What was the point of it all? Did it matter? Did the five armies on the Crimea gain anything for their sacrifice? Well guys, hate to say it, 
but compared to the price they paid in concrete terms, in the terms you can see on the map or have clean dates in the history book, the Crimean War accomplished very little at all. Most wars don't. I think I've made that point several times. Most wars don't accomplish that much. The most important outcome of the Crimean War was that it destroyed the concert of Europe. For 40 years, ever since the downfall of Napoleon, Europe's crowned heads and monarchs had worked together to prevent the outbreak of wars and revolutions and social upheaval. But the concert had failed to prevent the Crimean War, its one job, and was now basically pointless. The old band was not getting back together. What had once been resolved through diplomacy would now be resolved through force. 1815 to 1853 had been one of Europe's longest periods without a war between the great powers. But after the Treaty of Paris in 1856, Europe experienced a series of them. France and Austria in 1859, Austria and Prussia in 1866, France and Prussia in 1870. These conflicts led to the unification of Germany and Italy and the establishment of a new unbalanced power structure concerning a powerful Germany and a weakened France and Austria that ultimately ended in disaster in 1914. The big winner of the Crimean War, in the short term, was France. Emperor Napoleon III had accomplished all his goals. He had split the consort of Europe, he had revived the military glory of his uncle, although he hadn't actually done anything himself, and most importantly, he had kept his throne. France was and would remain the dominant power in Europe for the next decade and a half. How they lost that position to the Germans in 1870 in the Franco-Prussian War is a story for another day. A story that I absolutely do plan to tell, like that is one of the things I want to talk about in this podcast. The big loser of the Crimean War was not Russia. Russia would recover. Russia took a look in the mirror and said, you know what, I need to work on myself. The Tsar's empire would be wrapped up in internal reform for the next two decades. The Crimean War had been a wake-up call, a warning that they needed to modernize or die. But we'll get to that. No, the big loser of the Crimean War was Austria, even though they weren't in the war. There's a reason I've kept them sort of on stage throughout this whole series. You can refuse to play the game and still lose. Austria's position in Europe had depended on the balance of power and on the concert, but she had alienated her main ally, Russia, then failed to secure an alliance with anyone else. With the balance of power and concert of Europe in ruins, by refusing to pick a side, Austria found herself alone in Europe, giving the Sardinians, the Italians, the chance to call in that favor that France owed them from the Crimean War. In 1859, Napoleon III allied with the Sardinians to defeat the Austrians in the Second Italian War of Independence, the first war being in 1848. This opened the way for a new Kingdom of Italy to be established under the kings of Piedmont Sardinia in 1861. A few years later, in 1866, Prussia also defeated Austria, destroying its power in Germany. The Austrian Empire had been hamstrung. The fallout of the Crimean War kickstarted the decline of Habsburg Austria, one of Europe's oldest and most venerable great powers, until it was put out of its misery in the First World War. The Ottoman Empire had survived. For now, the sick man of Europe would hold out for quite a while. The sultans would continue their Tanzimat reforms, but these were not enough to postpone the inevitable. The empire would continue to lose its grip over far-flung territories like Egypt, Tunisia, Arabia, and especially the Balkans. 
With the Ottoman and Austrian empires both in terminal decline, a power vacuum opened up between them in the Balkans, a geopolitical crisis that would ultimately result in the First World War. That's one of those big long-term effects. There is no longer a great power in the Balkans. There might have been if the Crimean War had gone a different way. Because Russia was ready to take advantage of this power vacuum. In the late 1870s, Russia launched another invasion of the Ottoman Empire. The early stages of the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78 were a repeat of the Crimean War. But this was a new, improved, much more dangerous Russian army, and this time the Allies didn't come to Turkey's rescue. The war was a blowout victory for Tsar Alexander II, a victory that saw Russian troops within sight of Constantinople, though British intervention kept them from taking the Holy City itself. In the peace treaty, Russia regained the land it had lost and reversed all its setbacks of the Crimean War. Orthodox Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Montenegro gained autonomy or independence. The Orthodox had been liberated and the Tsar's holy mission had been at least partially fulfilled. But of course, this sowed the seeds for Russian interference in the Balkans, the growth of Serbia, the decline of Austria, the powder keg that would lead to the First World War. But the sick man of Europe would have the last laugh when that war finally came around, sparked like the Crimean War by a crisis in the Balkans. The Russian Tsars were overthrown by the revolution in 1917, but the Ottoman Empire managed to hold on for five years longer until 1922. The sick man of Europe, the Osmanli dynasty, outlasted every other European imperial dynasty, the Bonapartes, the Habsburgs, the German Hohenzollerns, even the Romanov Tsars. You can imagine the ghosts of Sultan Abdul Majid and Omer Pasha laughing. Hey, Tsar Nicholas, who's the sick man now? So we might say, the Crimean War barely accomplished anything. Everything its peace treaty had accomplished on paper had been undone in a quarter of a century. It ended decades of peace and opened the door to more wars. Wars that would make the Crimea pale in comparison. Was this really worth the 800,000 dead? Did I tell you guys this whole story just to describe some changing lines on the map, some kings and princes and dynasties? To describe a pointless, miserable war full of terrible leadership, mistreatment, brutality, and horrifying violence that meant nothing? Of course not. You know you should care, and you know I'm going to tell you why. The Crimean War is over. The immediate political fallout is wrapped up. The diplomats and monarchs and kings and queens figured out what the Crimean War decided. What it meant would be left to history. So, James, what does it all mean? What's the point? Why should I care? I am devoting the entire rest of this episode to telling you exactly why you should care. Why the Crimean War really, really does matter. Explaining the legacy of this war is a challenge for me. On the surface, it seems like a senseless slaughter. It's hard to see how there's anything worth talking about. The military leaders were bad. The tactics were bad. The strategies were bad. It was miserable. The peace settlement was undone in a few years. The borders barely changed. None of the core issues were really resolved. Between the downfall of Napoleon and the outbreak of the First World War, the Crimea was the only multilateral great power conflict. 
And in contrast to the drama of Napoleon and the horror of the Western Front, to a lot of people, the Crimea just seems dull. It, like, even the term, just the Crimean War, people see it, always seem to grasp this as such a dull, monotonous war. But here's the thing, guys. The Crimean War was less important for what it resolved on the spot, which was very little, than for what it represented, what it showed everyone about the direction the world was taking, the transformation of warfare and the world in the 19th century. The Crimean War was the first modern war. It saw the first use of a lot of military technologies, including the first modern rifles, the first ironclads, the first high-explosive naval shells, and first underwater mines. Improved artillery was becoming the dominant force on the battlefield, especially during the final stages of the Siege of Sevastopol. But the non-military technology was just as important. The railroad and the steamboat revolutionized military logistics, and the telegraph made communications near instantaneous. And the first decisive military use of these technologies was in the summer of 1855, when the power of the Industrial Revolution turned the tide. The Crimean War was the first industrial war, the first conflict in which mass production and machine power were not just present, they were the deciding factor. The Allies had factories, railroads, steamboat fleets, and an educated population that could turn these advantages into battlefield combat power. The Russians did not, and that made the difference. But these new technologies also transformed the battlefield. The greater ranges and killing power of modern weaponry made combat bigger, deadlier, emptier, longer, imposing new and unfamiliar stresses on the soldier. Captain Ardant Dupique summarized this in his book Battle Studies, which drew on his surveys and experiences of French veterans of the Crimean War. Battlefields have become immense. The soldier is unknown often to his closest companions. He loses them in the disorienting smoke and confusion of a battle which he is fighting, so to speak, on his own. Cohesion is no longer ensured by mutual observation. Battles tend to become now more than they have ever been, the battles of men. What Dupique describes as the psychological transition from how soldiers had fought for centuries, in close formation, under close supervision, with strict brutal discipline and rigid order, to the modern battlefield, where all battles would be soldiers' battles, where the small fighting unit, junior leadership, morale, and training were everything. The new levels of firepower and psychological strain of modern combat required a new kind of soldier, the modern soldier, which is why I described Inkerman as the first modern battle and the Crimean War as the first modern war. A lot of the tactical lessons would be forgotten out of ignorance, misunderstanding, or sheer inertia. Armies would still be marching in line, charging with cavalry and sabers drawn, fighting in rigid masses for the next 60 years well into the first months of World War I. Analysts dismissed the trench warfare in front of Sevastopol as a very specific scenario, not the new reality of war. Though the future would look a lot more like Inkerman and the Malakov than anyone wanted to believe. A lot of hard lessons would have to be relearned in 1914. No, for most European armies, the big takeaway of the Crimean War was the need for professionalization, professional officers to harness the needs of modern warfare professional supply services, medical corps, transport corps, railroad troops, and combat training, the need for educated officers who could think for themselves in the chaos of combat. 
The Crimean War hammered home the advantages of a professionally educated officer corps, like the French, over a bunch of clueless aristocrats handed rank like they deserved it, like the British or Russians. I mean, pretty obviously the French were the best army on the Crimea, and this was because of the way their officers were recruited and trained. Professionalism would be the new rallying cry of military reform heading forward, and this, almost always, also implied getting rid of the camp followers. The women who had performed all the rear area services for centuries, the cantoniers, the army wives, were increasingly replaced by supply clerks, transport corps, medical corps. This went hand in hand with the Victorian ideal of the woman safe at home, far from strain or exertion, the domestic utopian ideal. The Crimean War was the last British war where wives would go with their regiments on campaign, at least on purpose. Sometimes in India, especially, they would find themselves in the line of fire. Whether that was an improvement for the better or the worse depends on who you ask. There are arguments for both sides. But there were more than just military lessons. The rising prominence of the middle classes and the working classes could no longer be denied. Despite the aristocrats and dictators that claimed the right to rule, the lower classes had really started, driven, and ended the Crimean War. No one could afford to ignore the power of public opinion, mass media, and the new forms of romantic sentiment and nationalist pride. Before this, most wars had been started as by small groups of men at the top making policy. But not anymore. The Ottomans had been pushed into war by the Constantinople mob in 1853. The British middle classes had driven the country to war in 1854. Napoleon III manufactured the crisis that led to the Crimean War in order to secure public opinion and his own political position. He went to war for the same reason and played the key role in ending the war, con convincing the British to back down, when he realized his population would no longer support a longer conflict. The Sardinians went to war in a long-shot bid to realize the dreams of Italian nationalists, a bid that paid off. Even Russia could not ignore the serf uprisings and the danger that continuing the war posed to their entire society. The European powers had built the concert of Europe and the balance of power to try and stop this, but the lower classes of Europe were rising, aided by mass media, the telegraph, newspapers, growing literacy, and increased urban life caused by the Industrial Revolution. The Crimean War, the first mass media war, demonstrated what everyone wanted to ignore. The genie could not be put back in the bottle. The clock could not be turned back to 1789. Welcome to the modern world. And of course, the United States was in for its own first modern war in a few more years. I've avoided comparing the Crimean War too much to the American Civil War. Anyone who knows me, I start talking about the Civil War, I'm not going to stop. But it did slip in here and there. But all the lessons that European armies learned or failed to learn in the Crimea the Americans had to learn starting in 1861. The importance of railroads and steamboats and telegraphs, the effects of modern firepower, the need for professional officers and better supply services, the power of industrial economies and mass production versus underdeveloped agricultural slave societies, the impact of mass media, public opinion, romantic sentiment, and war fever and war weariness. You can even make one-to-one -one comparisons First Bull Run is kind of like the Alma. Pickett's Charge is pretty much the Charge of the Light Brigade. The Battle of Shiloh and the Battle of Inkerman. Clara Barton and Florence Nightingale. Clara Barton was literally called the American Florence Nightingale. Ulysses S. Grant and Aimable Pelissier. The Siege of Sevastopol and the Siege of Petersburg. 
Everything America experienced in the Civil War, there is an equivalent or something close to it on the Crimea. And the Crimea came first. The Crimean War was the first industrial, the first mass media, the first modern war, especially in its apex, the terrible, brutal fighting around Sevastopol in summer 1855, which was like a prototype of the Western Front of World War I. A new, terrible age of war was born on the Crimea. So to wrap it all up, we need to talk about how the Crimean War is remembered, its legacy. The Crimean War is barely remembered in France, Italy, or Turkey. For them, it's basically like a trivia question. Big reason for this is the Crimea was overshadowed with, by later conflicts with a bigger impact on their histories. For France, who lost 100,000 men on the Crimea, it is basically their forgotten war, though there are still traces. There is a suburb of Paris called Malakov, and most French towns have a street called the Rue Malakov and a series of monuments called Malakov Towers. The Turks, when they remember the Crimean War, think of it as part of a century of humiliation, of weakness in Western imperialism. Shame that the Europeans had to come rescue them, and bitterness of their later imperialist exploitation. Crimean War is kind of Turkey's forgotten war too. Italians don't even think about it. Russia, though, remembers it deeply. Russia was beaten, defeated, humiliated. The Russian people reacted to their loss in the Crimean War with anger and shame. Many of them blamed the failed backwards autocratic policies of the dead Tsar Nicholas I, the gendarme of Europe, for their traumatizing defeat. One Russian wrote, So many victims, all at the behest of a mad will, drunk with absolute power and arrogance. We have been waging war, maintaining an army of a million men and constantly threatening Europe. What was the point of it all? Europe has proved to us in our ignorance and apathy, our arrogant contempt for her civilization, just how decayed Russia really is. Oh, what wretches we are. I am going to refrain from making any comparisons between this quote's sentiment and any current events, but you can probably guess my opinion. The Russians were lucky, though. Nicholas's son, Tsar Alexander II, was one of the most liberal, reform-minded Tsars that Russia ever had. These reforms were driven by the Crimean War, which had clearly demonstrated the need to modernize, reform, and repair the broken systems of the Russian Empire. And this had to start from the ground up, from the people. There was one thing to do. In 1861, Tsar Alexander II abolished serfdom. He freed the serfs. This was in part in order to modernize the country, to bring, begin the transformation to an industrial economy, and preempt another revolution like the one that had almost broken out during the Crimean War. But there was a more human impulse as well. Many army officers, such as Tolstoy, had highlighted the sacrifices and heroism of the Russian soldier in the Crimean War. The rising professional officer class believed that to modernize the army, they needed to modernize the people. An acknowledgement by a few, just a few, that the Russian soldier was more than food for powder. Even if it was very incomplete in very many ways, the Russia remained an autocratic empire, the freeing of the serfs marked the end of an era in Russia. The great mass of the Russian people had gone from being unfree people, essentially slaves, to citizens. People of worth, people who mattered at least a little bit, people with at least some rights and freedoms. It was still Tsarist Russia, an authoritarian conservative regime, and still sucked, but it sucked less, and they were free. 
When you're in total darkness, any hint of light is something to be thankful for. Though Russia would still lag behind well into the 20th century, Alexander's reforms began a slow process of modernization. The Tsar was still an autocrat, but the army was reformed, factories built, and soon railroads began to cross the country. Russia was finally entering the industrial age, the modern age, a transformation made necessary and made possible by the Crimean War. But the Crimean War also passed into Russian myth and memory, especially the siege of Sevastopol. The siege became a moral triumph of the Russian people, a great epic of Russian courage and patriotism, not least because of Tolstoy's Sevastopol sketches. The fallen heroes had monuments, emblems, and epic poems about their deeds. Sevastopol was the city of glory, a mythological symbol of defiance, even more so after World War II, when in 1942 the Black Sea Fleet once again defended Sevastopol, this time from the Nazis. And if you watch the news, you probably know where this is going. In 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union resulted in the transfer of Crimea to the newly independent Ukraine. Russian nationalists were embittered by the loss of Sevastopol, holy ground to the mythology of their empire. One nationalist poet wrote in 1993, On the ruins of our superpower, there is a major paradox of history. Sevastopol the city of Russian glory is outside Russian territory. But someone was coming along to fix that. Ever since his death, Tsar Nicholas I had been viewed by most Russians as a cruel tyrant who had held Russia back, his autocratic regime a failure that had lost the Crimean War. This was how the late Tsarist Empire and the Soviet Union viewed Tsar Nicholas I. But in the early 2000s, Russian nationalists came to see Tsar Nicholas I as a righteous martyr, an anti-Western hero, the symbol of the true militarist Russian spirit who had stood up to a coalition of, of corrupting European powers. They celebrated everything that Tolstoy had seen as the sickness blighting the heart of Russia. Since 2007, a prominent portrait of Tsar Nicholas I hangs in the office of Russia's new Tsar, President Vladimir Putin. In 2014, Putin's Russian military invaded Ukraine and annexed the Crimea, an action which earned him the acclaim of Russian ultra-nationalists and kick-started a series of events that is still unfolding as I speak. 166 years after the siege of Sevastopol, the Black Sea rumbles once again with the sound of guns, the sounds of another Russian imperial holy war launched by another autocratic zealot, another wannabe Gendarme of Europe. The bones of the Crimea howl. Last but not least, the Crimean War transformed Great Britain. And this was a reaction to the failures of military leadership, the incompetence of the government, and the suffering of the soldiers. There was no glorious victory to celebrate. Not really. The last British battle of the war, the assault on the Redan, had been a bloody catastrophe. It was a hollow victory even to Queen Victoria. I own that peace rather sticks in my throat, and so it does to the whole nation. But Britain had gained something from the Crimean War. In my series, I usually finish by talking about some kind of media, some post-war interpretation of the conflict, and how it shows what the war meant. 
how people remember their history is often just as important as the history itself. For the Jacobite Wars, I talked about uh, Sir Walter Scott's novels. For the Imjin War, I talked about South Korean cinema. For the Crimean War, I'm going to talk about the monuments. There have been monuments of British wars for ages, and they had a certain form. They usually featured men on horseback, men on columns, men raising swords, Wellington, Nelson, kings and queens and generals and dukes and admirals, the noble heroes of the British upper class, the men who were supposed to be honored. But the Crimean War's monuments are different because they feature the soldiers. Hundreds of plaques and monuments stand all over Britain, even one in Canada and Nova Scotia, funded by the middle class in memory of the fallen. The British public reacted to the Crimean War not by celebrating the victorious leaders, what victorious leaders, but by mourning and consecrating the soldiers. In 1861, the most prominent of all British Crimean War monuments was erected in London. The Guards Memorial features three nameless bronze soldiers of the Guards Brigade, which had suffered 45% casualties in the sandbag battery at Inkerman. The inscription reads, to the memory of 2,152 officers, non-com officers, and privates of the Brigade of Guards who fell during the war with Russia in 1854-56, erected by their comrades. This was Britain's legacy of the Crimean War. The heroes weren't the generals, the leaders, the blue-blooded aristocrats. No, those guys were permanently discredited. They had failed at the one thing they were supposed to be good at, leading. In the eyes of the British public, the heroes of the Crimean War were the soldiers. It was a complete 180 from previous stereotypes of soldiers as drunken, ignorant, low-class brutes, good for nothing, the scum of the earth, food for powder. Now they were the gallant Tommies who had done their honest Christian duty at the Alma, at Balaclava, in the winter, at the Redan, and especially at Inkerman. It was like a light bulb had gone off in the heads of the British people, that their soldiers suffered, that they were human, that they mattered, and the heroism of the soldiers was being recognized. The Guards Memorial in London was the first monument in Britain to honor the ordinary soldier. And on June 26, 1857, Queen Victoria formally decorated 62 soldiers with the newly established Victoria Cross, Britain's first military award that did not recognize birth or class. 111 members of the British Armed Forces would receive the Victoria Cross from actions in the Crimean War. The largest single day of Victoria Crosses, 15 crosses were awarded for Inkerman. The belated recognition of the British soldier reflected a much larger shift. The aristocracy's right to rule had been completely undermined by their failures in the Crimea, exemplified most of all in the stupid, unforgivably incompetent Charge of the Light Brigade. It was the middle class that had sent Britain to war, had toppled Aberdeen's government, had fed and clothed the army, had built the railroads and run the steamboats and the factories. The Victorian middle class values of meritocracy, industry, professionalism, and good Christian morality were triumphant over the pampered privilege of the aristocracy. From the Crimean War onwards, the middle class would dominate British politics, and the government's policies would reflect their values and the middle class crowned the real hero of the Crimean War. 
Florence Nightingale, the mythical lady with the lamp, represented everything the middle class valued, as opposed to the carelessness and ignorance of Raglan and his generals. Florence worked the rest of her life to improve healthcare in Britain and India, advance women's rights, work for a better society. Above all, to the day she died in 1910, she made it her mission to improve the living conditions of the British soldier. I think she could never stop seeing the faces of all the men she had failed to save. In 1916, a statue of Florence Nightingale, Britain's Crimean War hero, was added to the Guards Memorial. All this, not least Florence's lobbying, led to belated changes. Rather belated, honestly. The Cardwell reforms from 1868 to 1871 reflected the realities of the modern battlefield, the rise of the middle classes, and the newfound concern for the British soldier. Military administration was reorganized. Terms of enlistment were shortened. Flogging and corporal punishment was abolished. Reserve forces were established. Professional military education was created. And finally, finally, the purchase of officers' commissions was ended. The British Army's officer corps would become a professional establishment, open to the middle class. From now on, men would have to earn their ranks through merit, not birth or money, at least in theory. It would be a new British army, finally broken from the dreams of Waterloo, that marched into the modern world. I have one more cultural artifact to talk about. Guys, we have come full circle. I began this season, heck, this entire podcast, with the description of a battle painting by a young English noblewoman, Elizabeth Thompson, Lady Butler. This was the painting Remnants of an Army, of Dr. Bryden riding out of the Khyber Pass, the image that began me talking about the Graveyard of Empires. Well, that wasn't Liz's first battle painting. In 1874, Elizabeth Thompson painted The Roll Call. It depicts the Grenadier Guards just after the Battle of Inkerman, standing in the snow, miserable, dejected, as an officer calls the roll, marking off the dead and wounded. The men are exhausted, with one even collapsing. The painting is unusual. It doesn't focus on an individual, not even the officer. It features all of the soldiers, equally in frame, at their most vulnerable. The roll call was a phenomenon, a smash hit. It was taken from city to city with crowds lined up outside its galleries just to see it. Kids ran around with sandwich boards just saying that just said the roll call is coming. That was all the advertising they needed. 20 years after the Crimean War, the British public flocked to lay eyes on this painting because it wasn't like the romantic war paintings of the past with faceless masses of men charging bravely with gallant generals rearing on their steeds. It showed the real, agonizing reality of war, the suffering and the sorrow of the Tommies, so real you could almost touch it. Queen Victoria bought the painting for an ungodly sum, and Elizabeth Thompson became a national heroine overnight. She had painted soldiers who were more than food for powder. You thought I forgot, but I didn't. Before we go, we need to send off our six protagonists. It's time to say goodbye. Sergeant William Jowett's letter to his father, November 19th, 1855. My dear father, I am sorry to inform you that my wound has not got on so well as I expected. Sergeant Jowett's leg had been infected from the wounds he received in the final assault on the Great Redan. It had to be amputated, and his health only got worse. His sister Susan wrote him a poem, urging him to come home to his village and the love of his family. 
Come home, brother. Come to the hearts that love thee, to the eyes that beam in brightness but to gladden thine. Come where fond memories like holiest incense rise, where cherished memories rears her altar shrine. Brother, come home. Sergeant Jowett was shipped back to a hospital in Britain. He was so beloved by his soldiers that every man volunteered to carry him on board the ship. He lived long enough to see his father and sister again and say his goodbyes before going home to his god on October 11th, 1856, at the age of 26. His village raised money for a monument in Nottingham, England, which can still be seen today. Shortly after he passed, our soldier's father presented his son's diary to Queen Victoria. It wound up in the Royal Archives, where I found it on the internet at 1am after a long night of research for this series. I'm glad I found it. I'm glad I could tell you about William Jowett, at least one less unknown soldier. After his release from a Russian POW camp in December 1856, Captain Ardant Dupic had a gloriously successful military career. He was Colonel of the 10th Regiment of the Line when the Franco-Prussian War began. Dupic was mortally wounded at the Battle of Mars la Tour on August 15, 1870, leading his regiment from the front, the same battle in which the Prussian General von Bredau conducted his famous death ride. Dupic's writings were published posthumously under the title Battle Studies, and they are one of the great military theoretical texts of the modern age. Still shockingly relevant today, they still appear in generals' reading lists and military academy curricula in the 21st century. Our officer was one of the first to describe the modern battlefield, and his words have guided soldiers ever since. We've seen the stories of Leo Tolstoy and Mary Seacole, but there are some final notes. Like many historical figures overlooked for their color or their gender, recognition came very late for Mary Seacole. In 2016, St. Thomas's Hospital in London memorialized her with a statue, the first statue of a black woman in Britain. She is depicted moving forward defiantly, rolling with the punches. It is inscribed with a quote from her autobiography. Wherever the need arises, on whatever distant shore, I ask no higher or greater privilege than to minister to it. Our healer is now recognized as a heroine for all non-white Britons, proof that the color of their skin is no barrier to their courage and patriotism. In 1910, Leo Tolstoy was on his deathbed in his family estate when he decided that he would not die comfortably, surrounded by the luxuries that the peasants could never have. The 82-year-old Tolstoy fled his home in the middle of winter and boarded a train, ranting to his fellow passengers about love, nonviolence, and equality. He was found dying of pneumonia in a train station in Astapovo, a final rejection of his luxurious aristocratic life. Our author's last words were, but the peasants, how do peasants die? His wife was furious. Daria Mikhailova, known to Russian legend as Dasha Sevastopolskaya, actually did pretty well for herself. She had received a fair amount of money as an award from the Tsar. She could have blown in the like mobile games or Versace bags or something, but instead Daria used that money to found and operate taverns in Mikolaev and the rejuvenated Sevastopol. She continued her nursing work, and when she retired, she was gifted an orthodox icon by her grateful patients. Our nurse passed away in 1892, and in 1975 she got an asteroid named after her, which is pretty sweet. She also has a memorial in Sevastopol, and there is a hospital there named for her. 
but Dasha had it easier than our first and last protagonist. Guys, this one's hard. Nell Butler and her husband Michael were ruined by the Crimean War. He never really recovered from his fever, and she never recovered from a case of frostbite she suffered during the winter of 1854-55, which eventually left her right arm crippled. Michael was disabled later by a wound during the Siege of Sevastopol. He was discharged from the army, and they went home to scratch out a living any way they could. Michael got a job in the Portsmouth dockyard, but he had never been the same after his illness and injury on the Crimea. Nell took care of her charming, funny Irishman as long as she could, but there were no veterans' benefits or social security in industrial-age Britain. Michael died young, leaving our army wife a widow. Nell rallied other Crimea army wives to lobby the government for pensions. She lived on that pension, an elderly widow, still dreaming of her husband in the all-too-brief time they had shared on the Crimea. I often dream and awake frightened, having seen Michael twice the last month. He was calling me, saying, Nell, Nell, come away or they'll break thy heart. A month after she said those words in 1909, at the age of 79, Nell Butler died. At her funeral, dozens of old soldiers of the 95th Regiment came to pay their respects to their frontline Florence Nightingale. Nell's grave marker reads simply, Ellen Butler, Crimean veteran. Our army wife lies in Portsmouth, 75 miles away from the Guards Monument in London. Two very different monuments, but two sides of the same story. Nell Butler, her arms covered in blood, caring for the dying in the trenches outside Sevastopol, was an unknown soldier just as much as the mud-covered, frenzied guards fighting to the death at Inkerman. They were the tragedy and the glory that was the Crimea. Do you see why I chose these people? Because none of them were born incredible, even Tolstoy. They made themselves incredible by what they did, what they witnessed, what they sacrificed. They were the triumph of an idea, so radical in a 19th century ruled by wealth and privilege, that what you did mattered more than how you were born. Our only noble protagonist, Tolstoy, died asking how the peasants died. The rest of them made their way in the world against all, all odds, against so much resistance, made their way to the Crimea, and taught the world something new. Something that it took Lord Raglan so long to understand, what he finally did understand when he saw the bodies of his men at the foot of the Redan. That despite their low birth and low class, they meant something. They were worth something. They mattered. I think of the Guards Memorial. I think of the Roll Call. I think of the liberation of the serfs, the monuments to healers and nurses in London and Sevastopol, novels beloved by the world, and a military text read by generations to come, a diary in the hands of Queen Victoria, and a simple gravestone in southern England. They all add up to the story of Europe in the 19th century, a Europe that changed them and was changed by them. A Europe fueled by romantic passions, reformist zeal, nationalist dreams, and revolutionary hopes. A Europe that was awakening to the idea that all people, not just the men at the top, matter, including the soldiers and the women at the bottom. I would say it's still a work in progress. We're still learning that to this day, but it began here. With the realization that these men and women who gave everything they had were more, weren't they, than just food for powder. Guys, what else is there to say? 
I've told you why it was important, why it matters, why you should care, why the Crimean War was a big deal. So let's close the book. One thing I really want you all to take away from this series as a whole is that military history is not and cannot be separate from other kinds of history. I started this series with a very long, non-military screed on the Victorian age, a lot of very non-war stuff. But if you'll notice, everything I said in that intro trickled down into the Crimean War. The Industrial Revolution, the Romantic Ideals, the Reform Movements, and the rise in literacy and mass media, the nationalist rebellious impulses that destabilized the old empires, and the fragile power of the aristocracy over the rising lower classes— All of these had a direct impact on the war, on the armies, on the generals, and on the battles. I'm not going to rehash it all, but I think I made it very clear. But those other kinds of history, political, economic, social, cultural, also affected by military history. The Crimean War may not have had long-lasting political or diplomatic effects. In this way, it really was futile. But it caused a massive shift in so many other areas. The birth of modern warfare a revolution in healthcare and nursing spearheaded by Florence Nightingale, the end of serfdom in Russia, and the shift in political power in Britain from the noble class to the middle class, four major developments you can directly trace to the Crimean War. And even if the Crimean War wasn't a big shift in the political and diplomatic history of Europe, you know, all the stuff that's much easier to see on a map, it had the potential to be. I can think of two alternate history scenarios, we can call them counterfactuals, where this might have happened. Number one, what happens if Russia does destroy the Ottoman Empire in 1854, if the West decides not to intervene for whatever reason? Lord, think of the fallout. The Ottoman Empire falling apart almost 70 years early. What happens to the Balkans? What happens to the Middle East, freaking Israel and Palestine? What would happen to Russia if they did take Constantinople, their legendary Tsargrad? That's your first big what-if. I think there's so many implications to this that I can't even begin to talk about it too much. The other counterfactual comes from today's episode. What if Lord Palmerston gets his way? Or what if Russia refuses to back down? And the Crimean War goes into 1856 with a European coalition versus Russia, maybe with allies of its own. Could the United States of America even get drawn in? A small possibility, but a possibility. Is it World War I, again, 60 years early? Would the siege of Sevastopol be repeated in Warsaw, Kiev, Stockholm, or Berlin? It's such an enormous what-if that there's no way of telling what would have happened. So really, the Crimean War's actual outcome shouldn't be seen as pointless. It prevented those other two possibilities, each of which would have had massive fallout for European and world history. Sometimes a turning point that fails to turn, the road not taken, just highlights the importance of the road that you're on. Because even if the Crimean War was a limited war for, fought for limited objectives, it was bad enough. It pointed the way to the great bloodbaths of the 20th century. And I think that that's about all I have. I'm just going to remind you guys, as I always do, that this story was a story about people just like you and me. The men and women of the Crimean War came from the streets of London, the fields of Ukraine, the farms of Normandy, the vineyards of Italy, and the deserts of Egypt. They came to a little spit of land called the Crimea, where thousands, hundreds of thousands lie today, where construction work occasionally uncovers a few more bones. Some of them were remembered in memorials and plaques and icons. Some of them remain nameless. 
Their bones still lie in that unquiet soil, where if you listen closely today, you can hear the sound of explosions from the current Russian Imperial War. Every Betty, every Dominique, Tanya, Giovanna, Nahir, wondered what became of their lost sons and husbands and brothers and fathers. They remembered them, even if the dark industrial world of the 19th century never recorded their names, even if they lie there still as unknown soldiers. Oof. Thank you so, so much for listening to me today and throughout the series. I hope you enjoyed and learned from the epic of the Crimean War. And I really hope you felt something. I poured heart and soul into this series, and I hope it comes out. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. Evangelize. (laughs) If you don't, tell your enemies. Maybe they'll have a change of heart and realize you're not food for powder. Maybe, hopefully it doesn't take an assault on a terrible fortress to make them realize that. If you want to check out my sources, they are all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com, including book recommendations if you want to know more about the Crimean War, because there is a lot I left out for just for sheer necessity. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. And of course... I have a couple of Crimean War postscripts coming up. A couple of loose ends I couldn't fit in anywhere else. Next week, we have two short rounds again. Sorry if that's annoying. I didn't mean for the schedule to go this way, but it's what I got. It's all going to be fixed in season two, hopefully. But next week, okay. We are going to uncover the dark history of Russian imperialism. Huh. It could get darker. And meet someone who I planned to be the seventh protagonist, but had to put into his own short round. This is Imam Shamil, the great Muslim resistance leader of of Chechnya, Lord of the Caucasus. This short round will cover the Russian-Caucasian War from 1817 to 1864, a conflict that remains extremely relevant today. Why? Well, you'll have to freaking find out, won't you? (laughs) And on a lighter note, let's get something to eat. Ever wonder how the soldiers of the Crimean War filled their stomachs? drank themselves stupid, and generally sustained themselves throughout the siege of Sevastopol? Hint, it wasn't healthy. That's right, it's time to take a fun little look at the rations of the Crimean War. What did the soldiers eat and drink, and why was it terrible? Because it was. See you next week for our post-series wrap-ups, and the week after that, for the final episode of Unknown Soldiers Podcast Season 1, because I finally get to talk about the American Civil War. <laughs> at the very end. See you same place, same time next week on Unknown Soldiers.